This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. You don't own me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other boys. Sawete, I'm your host, Stella, and this is Back for the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 192 for June MMXX. Back for the Oracle is brought to you by the Batman Universe, as well as Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You spark fleet officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. 
Freaks.com. And Backroll to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, this is weird because you can see us. <laughs> I decided to try something new. We're in these unprecedented times. And so I thought, let's do something special. And I'm here to lead you through questions that everyone wants to know, like if a baby Yoda makes a poo and the Mandalorian is not there, who cleans it up? But with me today <laughs> are, yes, I know. Okay, well, we've got Let's Go Ladies first. She is, as I said, a Twitter influencer, but even better about her is that you can throw her under the bus, accuse her of things, be hostile to her on Twitter. She doesn't respond. You can call her Carolyn. I call her Professor Polytetrafluoroethylene. Welcome. You, you, you've never called me that, but okay. Hi. <laughs> first, Thank you first, for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on. And above me, as you see him, is the rival to my affections for Harold. It's Donovan Morgan Grant. <laughs> this is the first and last time I'm never doing this. Well, oh, that I'll take your word for that. That means I can get Shag on to do the rest of the Cassandra Kane run. Oh, <gasps> never mind. Never mind. Forget okay. Uh, yeah, so we, I thought this could be fun, partially because Carolyn actually threatened me last month that if I didn't catch up on Clone Wars, that I was not allowed to record an episode, and Donovan was all on that, like, they could do it together, and I thought, that's not going to happen. But Okay, I that is true. It. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> I did catch up. It was strange because, of course, I threaten other people and tell them to do things, but coming at me, it felt very uncomfortable. But here we Isn't are, it? I thought... But I thought, why not bring these two wonderful people on and just have a fun little first-time-ever Backroll the Oracle video podcast? If you're not watching this, you might be listening to it. So with the watching, it's going to be bare bones. There won't be any music because I don't need YouTube coming after me. I'll say there's a next, next segment coming on, but you won't hear it. But you can go to wherever you normally download and you'll get the, the full thing with intros and things like that. But... I want to first talk to you guys because I think I've talked to you both when the pandemic started and we just talked about how our lives were different. And I think we could constantly do that. But I thought we could transition and as an intro do, what sorts of things are you doing that is uh, helping you find your joy coming from Shag? So I call this new segment Shag's Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy. So what sorts of things are bringing you comfort and joy in these weird times? Carolyn, why don't you go first? <laughs> She's got her thinking face on. Well, now you can see my thinking face. Oh. Yes. Okay, comfort and joy. Okay. Uh, I like to, well, part of it is I still have a routine um, because even though my semester ended, I'm teaching a session of summer school. So I still kind of have class, um, which is kind of giving me more of a structure on weekdays. Um, I try to make sure to exercise every day and usually outside, but I also do yoga and meditate and I like to cook. So I'm trying to take more time with that because I have more flexible time to do that. Uh, we're catching up on movies. I've read some good books, that kind of thing. 
Don, how about you? What's your comfort and joy? Macaroni and cheese. I don't like that you labeled Shag's name over it. No, um, I have been maintaining the last two months. I've been furloughed. I think the most consistent thing that I've been doing is just working out at home. It's been, it's helped me kind of stay consistent because it helps me kind of experiment with the dumbbells that I have and kind of like, you know, kind of push myself in ways in which I've not, I've not, I've been, com- I've been comfortable not pushing myself. Uh, I've been trying to go outside, although it's been like raining constantly here in Nashville. But I think working out has been the most consistent way I've been, been productive. I've not read as much as I, I really thought I was going to, um, except for like, unless it's like a, an article for DC Universe. There's not been an uptick in podcasts necessarily, but I think exercise, you know, trying to do more push-ups than I usually can do and going outside has been the most productive way I've found my joy. So, yes. Yeah. So I, the, I, the, term, the Terminator 2 approach. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I need to be as strong and swole as uh, Linda Hamilton. That's, yeah. that's my goal. Oh, man. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, getting out there, I start to cycle a lot more. And my brother does like 70 to 80 miles. And he'll text me his updates because he's training for a half Ironman. And so I'm definitely not up there. But, you know, maybe my goal will be like half of that or something. But yeah, definitely reading, as you all know. And uh, I actually just finished last night a marathon of playing all the Uncharted games. So PlayStation had recently put out for free because of all of this stuff, one, two, and three, the collection on PS4. And then I already had number four and then Lost Legacy. So I just finished Lost Legacy. So that was a lot of fun. And I'm just preparing myself emotionally for when The Last of Us Part Two comes out because that will not be joyful. So I'll be really <laughs> excited to play it. But yeah, just getting to that. So yeah, so I think that's just the message is that, uh, you know, Shag's message of find your joy always was, I think, applicable to comics. That's what he always tried to tell us. But I think it's very true now with everything. And I was even telling my students, like, find some way that you can get some bit of joy out there because otherwise it's just like you can't handle it. Uh, The other thing we have to talk about, which Don has no interest in at all, I did have an Ahsoka pop. Uh, Now she's too far away. I'll have to go back there and find her. But the Clone Wars ended. They brought back a seventh season, right? Seventh. And they had 12 episodes. And uh, I was late to the game. I think secretly, I was just trying to draw it out as long as possible (laughs) before it would end. But I finally watched the last episode. And so, Carolyn, what is your impression on this season overall? And were you happy with how it ended? I, I know the beginning, you can talk about that. We, we discussed that a bit. But just your thoughts on bringing it back and, and how it turned out. I think it was a good idea to bring it back. I think Disney Plus was the right venue to do it. I mean, people have certainly, people are still certainly invested in the Skywalker saga. <laughs> I think we know that. Um, but it, it felt unfinished when it ended because it was. They had more episodes. And a couple of the ones that were begun but unfinished turned out to be the first ones of this episode. I mean, this season, sorry. I found there were 12. I found the first two thirds of them not so interesting, which was kind of a bummer. (laughs) Um, The first ones were just about the clones, which I mean, all respect to Dee Bradley Baker, who does every voice of every clone and makes them sound different and gives them all personality. That's amazing. It was just, to me, felt like an awful lot of guys shooting and yelling. 
Um, then there was the second arc where, which is not my thing. Some people like it. That's fine. Um, the second one was about Ahsoka and sort of, she just sort of has this side adventure with these two women, these sisters. And that's fine because they're trying to just not give you exactly what you want right away, which is to get back into the timeline proper that's familiar to you. And that's what the last four episodes were. So these last four episodes are basically what everybody's waited all these years for, which is, it's not just the journey. I mean, this is what I appreciated about it was it's not just the journey of Ahsoka from annoying little Padawan with a lot to learn through becoming a Jedi to, to hear, but it's, it's also how the Clone Wars finally meets up with Anakin and Obi-Wan going to rescue the chancellor from Dooku and Order 66, and what the Jedi Council is doing at that time. It also, they clearly took care to make it cinematic in look and in score. Uh, But these last four episodes, the ones that I really liked, were more, they they not only tied up the stories of Ahsoka and Rex, but they also um, tied everything in with all the prequel movies and everything that happens up to the fall of Darth Vader. I totally recommend it. And even honestly, if you never watched any Clone Wars, you can still watch these last four episodes and you'll basically get what's going on because you know most of the characters. So, yeah, I'm glad that they did it. I'm glad I saw it. Same. I assume you. Yeah, I I think I I would say everything that you said. Um, It was almost like a gimmick because I think the real reason everyone wanted it was because of Ahsoka. And you may not have liked Ahsoka at the beginning of Clone Wars. I think uh, as she's developed, you really get to be a fan of her. And I think part of the reason that Rebels is so great is like waiting for Ahsoka to appear when she does. And everyone's super excited for Ahsoka coming into Mandalorian. So I was just waiting for Ahsoka to appear. And when she finally did, the storyline was okay with that, but it was just all a preface to this final bit with the Mandalorian on Mandalore and, and Darth Maul reappearing. And yeah, cinematic, wonderful fight sequences. I even watched the behind the scenes because they did mocap for it, motion capture, yeah. just like for video games. And so they actually had Ray Park back as Darth Maul. And so that was just great that it was. Why hasn't he? How could he not have aged, though? That's not right. <laughs> I have, I, it's just one of those people, I guess, the elixir of youth runs through his veins. Yeah. But just having, I, I think that was just such respect there is, you know, having his actual body being the body that they, they captured. And Rex, yeah, having that. And episode four was just so emotional too, because of the ending where uh, she has that moment with Rex, she removes his helmet, they talk about, you know, soldiers and that, you know, they're ready to die. And she said, they might be ready to die, but I'm not going to be the one to kill them. And then the graveyards, like it was who an emotional ride. If I didn't know that Ahsoka was going to make it out, I would have been really uh, in a frenzy. I think I was already like clenched because it was just really intense. And and I thought, oh gosh, what's going to happen? But yeah, it was great. Even the droids, the droids at the end and, and doing their heroic duties. So I think while the beginning was a bit slow and it's not necessarily what we were looking for. I think the end absolutely those last four episodes makes up for it. And, and I, yeah, I recommend watching the clone wars from the beginning. But like you said, if you just want a good idea of of what it is watching those last four. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the clone wars is uneven. The whole, you know, the seven seasons of it is uneven. Yeah. Um, 
I, I would recommend it too, but if you wanted to see what all the fuss is about, you could watch these last four episodes and consider them sort of episode two and a half because they're, they have that kind of scope. They could, That's they true, slot yeah. in between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith and are arguably better than <laughs> uh, two and a half of the prequel movies. Oh, <laughs> so. man. Yeah. I said it. I said it. I yeah, I heard you. I heard you say it. Do you are you a fan of General Grievous, by the way? Have we ever talked about him? Sure. I mean, who wouldn't look at Oh gosh. Well, I said I was given I was on a Star Wars podcast as a guest and I did this quiz that the the guy was giving Ryan Daly. And I, I made mention that General Grievous is cool. And then he was like, oh, gosh, you're going to get kicked out of the Star Wars community. I thought, what's wrong with General Grievous? He, he takes lightsabers from all the Jedi that he's slain. I think he's amazing. Stella, Stella, Harry loves General Grievous. See, that's why Harold and I are meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> this isn't the Star Wars podcast, even though every time Carolyn comes on, we always find a way to talk about it. Um, I know. <laughs> but we are going to talk right. about some random story. I guess one of the reviews that we're going to do is random, and then the other one is Cast King. So we'll start with the random ones. Asriel. Asriel has returned in my list on Excel of Barbara popping up in it. So we're going to co- uh, cover a four-issue arc, and we kind of get s- dropped down in the middle of things. I actually can't remember the last time I covered an Asriel issue. So this is 72. It's It's been a while. But uh, I want to give you some background on what's going to happen in this particular story. And then Carolyn's going to do the first two plot synopses. I'll do the last two, and then we'll chat about it. And then Donovan will be up later on with his precious Cassandra Kane. So... <laughs> There's this character named the Prophet, and he is also known as Jeremiah Tompkins, who happens to be the younger brother of Dr. Leslie Tompkins. This was a shock to me. I didn't know she had any siblings, but there we go. He was a doctor and a missionary in Saudi Arabia, and during that time, he compiled a list of people that he considered evildoers, as a missionary does, of course. He traveled to the Middle East in October, where Leslie actually lost track of him. And she asked John Paul to look for him. She has a pretty good relationship with John Paul, which we'll see in the later issues, kind of this internal debate that John Paul goes through because of Leslie. Batman is aware of the mission, so he's kind of keeping track as well. And then the faux Azrael or the imposter, he'll go by either name. He actually comes from an Asian sect of the Order of St. Dumas in Shanghai, so he kind of Peers. Jeremiah believes that the imposter's presence is a sign of his salvation. And then Jeremiah, also known as Jerry, speculates that the imposter is an agent of good and he has come to the desert to fight evil. So that's kind of just a background of what's happening. I think that's enough to like give you some understanding of what's going on because I apologize to you two for kind of just dropping us in there. I mean, who? Yeah. Apolog- you know when this summary would have been useful? Like a week ago. <laughs> Whoa, ma'am. I dropped that in a couple days ago. I apologize. Heavens above, ma'am. Okay, well, uh, Professor Polytetrafluoroethylene, you are up. All right. (laughs) So everything you just said, I kind of had to look up because I started reading it. I didn't really know what was happening. So I 
what she was just talking about starts two issues before. So number 72, where we start, is Profit Part 3, Helen Back, January 2001 by Denny O'Neill, pencils by Sergio Cariello, inks by James Pasco, colors by Rob Rowe. The cover is like Jeremiah Tompkins looking kind of Jesus-y, but a little demonic and long-nailed, and Osriel's floating head is in the background, and there's some like geometrically colored shapes. Okay, so... The Osriel from the Asian sect of the Order of St. Dumas in Shanghai. So he's like an Osriel, but he's not our Osriel. So since you gave me the choice between faux Osriel and imposter, I'll go with faux Osriel. <laughs> so our Osriel, Jean Paul Valley, takes advantage of faux Osriel's hesitation in the first panel of this issue to jump out the window and run. <laughs> so faux Osriel catches up with Jean-Paul and saves him from landmines and lets him go. And, and then he sets off a landmine to make it sound like Jean-Paul was killed. Jeremiah, Leslie's brother, wants to rid the world of evil, evildoers and all that. And Leslie asked Jean-Paul to bring him home. Jeremiah heard the explosion and congratulates faux Osriel. Meanwhile, in Gotham City, Batman sneaks up on Oracle and asks if she's heard anything from Jean-Paul in Saudi Arabia. Batman is worried that Jean-Paul is both naive and has also gone through so much trauma that he could just turn into the killing machine he was trained to be. P.S. says Batman, I have some experience with childhood trauma, as if any of us forgot about that. So Jeremiah tells Faux Azrael that they are leaving the Middle East in order to deal with the many wicked people on this wicked earth, and Faux Azrael will be his instrument of vengeance. Jeremiah tells Faux Azrael the stolen medical supplies that they have were meant for a children's hospital, but since the supplies are better served as bait for evildoers, he decides the children will have to wait because he's terrible. Meanwhile, this general, whose name is McGog, not to be confused with the DC Universe's McGog, General McGog becomes concerned, or maybe it is supposed to be, I don't know. General McGog is concerned that this officer Worley is uh, in trouble since either, neither he nor Jean-Paul have returned. Magog and a couple of his men find Worley's jeep, then they go to Jeremiah's base, where they find traces of blood but no bodies. Magog figures Jean-Paul is still alive, since he's a great warrior, and he respects him, but if they meet again, Magog will not extend him any more courtesies. So Jeremiah and Faux Azrael arrive in Legostan, which I guess is generic DC fictional Middle Eastern country, where a band of soldiers stop a truck that is transporting refugees across a border in the mountains. The soldiers begin to open fire on the refugees, but Bo Azrael jumps in to kill the soldiers. Jeremiah is pleased. And a refugee asks Jeremiah for any medical supplies that could help his injured daughter. But Jeremiah says he can't be bothered with things like that because he's terrible. So but we see Bo Azrael kind of tilting his head, seemingly disgusted at this. Then Faux Azrael tells Jeremiah that he is Azrael. And Jeremiah says, great, you're the avenging angel sent by God to test me and help me redeem the world. And then Jeremiah has like a list, a literal list of evildoers, and they're going to decide where their next crusade will be. Okay, meanwhile in Gotham City, Batman sneaks up on Oracle again. Oracle hands him some documents about Penguin's tax returns and says they haven't heard from Jean-Paul in a month. Then she tells him that... The refugee that Jeremiah refused to help told the story to a doctor at a nearby clinic because he did go to get his daughter treated for this bullet wound. And he told this doctor about a man in a mask who killed people with a sword just a couple of days after they last heard from Jean-Paul. So they're both like, okay, so that's the end of number 72. Then number 73, Losses Part 1, colon, Homecoming, um, is the same creative team. Uh, This cover has a similar style as the last cover, but it's got like different parts with kind of traditional drawings of the characters and then other things like a bat logo and what I assume is Batman's brain is inside his head. It's 
Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, right. And and I and someone that I assume is Babs on the cover, but she looks really creepy and the, with an angle and proportions and color. We can talk about that later. Okay, Batman confronts Azrael in part one of this powerful three-part story. Not really. Okay, so Bo Azrael and Jeremiah burst into a clinic and terrorize someone named Marcy, who I can only assume is Babs' old best friend, Marcy. Just kidding. She knows Jeremiah. She calls him Jerry. She she hopes he'll use his doctor skills there. She's sorry their relationship didn't work out. He says, yeah, well, but then you found Frank, who, of course, left you because of your foulness. He actually says foulness. Then this elderly patient comes in, and Jeremiah is so mad to be interrupted, he knocks her over because he's terrible. He tells Bo Azrael to kill Marcy, which he does, along with two other guys. I would note here that often in real life, uh, mass murderers kill their partner or former partner before killing others. Uh, and that most mass murderers are male, and most of those domestic partners are female. <laughs> Jeremiah drags the elderly lady by her hair because he's terrible. He drags her outside the clinic so she can tell people about them, and then tell, and then he tells Bo Azrael to set the clinic on fire. Oracle calls Batman and calls him boss, which, no. She tells him about the clinic. It was 18 miles from where the refugees were and tells him about the elderly lady mentioning an avenging angel. Batman puts his head in his hands and recaps for us. It's Jean-Paul Valley, Azrael, programmed to be an assassin and notes he could have put him away many years ago, but he didn't. Then he punches a punching bag off a chain because he's so strong and he's so upset and so manly. Oracle thinks... <laughs> Oracle hopes that she and the boss are wrong. Meanwhile, Arjan Paul is at the Order of St. Dumas. He's reading books. He read The Great Gatsby. Good for you, buddy. So uh, we beat on Warren Baxley Sicily into the past. He thanks Nomos, I guess that's how you say it, for rescuing him. Uh, he needs to get across the desert, so Nomos leads him to a hovercraft, which, of course, they have there. Nomos won't speak because since he left the order, he doesn't know who he is, so he doesn't know how he should speak, which Jean-Paul notes is either very profound or very ridiculous and literally says, and I'm quoting, thanks for everything. I hope you get an identity. Goodbye. <laughs> so Batman visits Leslie, who quite reasonably questions his mental health, and he in turn says she sent Jean-Paul to get Jeremiah, and he's worried that he's killing people. She says Jeremiah worked in Lagostan. He was brilliant, but he was intense and he lacked compassion. She asks him to promise that he won't hurt either of them. And he just says, sorry, Batman does, that is. So Faux Azrael has killed some more people and he and Jeremiah are scaring a drug dealer whom they leave alive to tell about them because they keep doing that. Jean-Paul arrives in Gotham and he calls Oracle. And Oracle says, the boss is blaming you for a lot of killings. Again, with this boss thing, no. He doesn't deny it. Uh, Jean-Paul, but he hangs up and he's annoyed that Batman is blaming him again, exclamation point. He goes to Bruce as Bruce in the Wayne building and asks what he wants. Bruce drops his millionaire Bruce smile and he says, I want you, Azrael. And then they have hot sex on the desk. No, that's not what happened. I knew it. I knew it. I know, obviously, right? He Literally, it ends, I want you, Azrael. So make of that what you will, dear reader. It's true. Carol Bruce wrote a slash fic. It was a short one, but yeah. It was a short one. <laughs> yeah, trigger warning, Donovan. Why doesn't uh, Batman trust Azrael? Yeah, yeah, I could have used that last night. I was reading that. I was like, oh, geez, this is gonna be the entire episode, isn't it? Hey, man, that's why I brought on uh, Professor P. Okay, here we go. Yeah. 74, Losses Part 2, Accused. The cover date is March 2001, and same creative team. Bruce Wayne Jerk, as I'll call him, with 
he's designed with a lazy eye, which reminds <laughs> me of Donovan's lazy eye fetish. Donovan, do you <laughs> do you remember how you you my I, what? <laughs> it was more than five minutes. Remember any time the Mad Hatter popped up in New Fifty Two, he had a lazy eye and he had to point it out. Do you remember when I gave those issues? Very poor grades. But anyways, it just made me laugh when I saw that. He really does open up the, it's like page one. So anyways, Bruce Wayne jerk uh, is about to tell John Paul that he knows he's been killing a bunch of people in the Middle East. But plot twist, he gives him a bunch of evidence that it can't possibly be him. Trusting Azrael actually doesn't come up in the list of evidence, I will like to say. John Paul tells Bruce of the imposter and Jeremiah Tompkins on the way to the manor. Bruce tells him it is up to John Paul whether he wants to go after the imposter and Bruce will help him because he has an obligation to John Paul. In the cave, Bruce tells Jean-Paul that they need to find Sister Lily, Lil He, and get Jean-Paul a new costume, which is interesting, but I'll talk about that later. Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, a man who translated something important to Jerry's mission is killed by Jerry because, you know, he don't want information to get out. At a hotel room, Jerry reads up on the order of St. Dumas and Lil He. Jerry assumes that without her, the imposter will be free. So they need to get rid of her, and then the imposter can be under his control. She is every evil woman from the Bible combined. That was nice. <laughs> they don't have Oracle, but they do have a phone that Lil He actually gave the imposter. She is called up. She's disappointed that John Paul is dead, but tells the imposter to come to Gotham immediately. While all this is happening, Batman and Jean-Paul visit Oracle, who has nice hair, Professor Allen, to see if she can pick up the trail of Lilhi, who surprisingly is in a swanky hotel in Gotham, and it's $40,000 a day, which is insane. Oracle later laughs at the men because they can't go vanquish evil until they get the right clothes. And this was actually uh, really funny because I, I've been watching feminist frequency videos uh, with Anita Sarkeesian, and she talked about this ad for Perfect Dark, I think it was called, and it's all sexualized. And this woman is like, what her, her greatest choice is, what does she wear? And then she mm -hmm. made up a fake ad of what happened if a man did that. And then here it is. They actually, they don't get the joke though, Batman and Jean-Paul, they don't laugh. Uh, but it is funny. Welcome to 2016. There's a war out there. Somewhere. You're not sure where exactly. Anyway, the important thing is you're Special Agent Jake Grimshadow. It's your job to save the world. The only question is, what are you going to wear? Wait, what? What? Jean-Paul and Bruce discuss the costume in Leslie Tompkins because Jean-Paul doesn't know if he wants to get back in the violence game. And I think this is all coming from, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Don, wasn't it in No Man's Land where he and Wesley had like several serious sit down conversations about like his lifestyle and what he was doing? And so he kind of took that to heart from her. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah. Okay. So that's just keep that in the back of your mind with a lot of the decisions that he goes through. John Paul wants to just talk to Lil He, so he feels like he'll be fine, even though the word balloons are given to Bruce, which was a weird mistake there. John Paul calls Lil He, who is shocked since she thought him dead, but then there's a little test, and yeah, it's really him. All parties converge in the Gotham Hotel, along with the chubby elevator repairman. Jerry is upset that the imposter lied that Jean Paul was killed. Jerry says. 
uh, slay them. Will he says, listen to me. And the fat repairman says, obey me before being thrown out of a window 20 stories up. R.I.P. Batman. Well, a few, a few years early, but yes. <laughs> Asriel 75 lost his part three fallen angel. And this was April, 2001 cover date, same creative team. Alas, Batman is not dead, but he Gabby Douglas's his way back into the hotel and kicks the imposter, then knocks out Jerry while Lily shoots Jean-Paul and the imposter escapes. Lily tries to explain about the gunshot that she wasn't aiming for him, whatever. Jerry is taken by police until the imposter rescues him and Jean-Paul and Bruce go to the cave to get Jean-Paul patched up. Not by Alfred this time. Leslie wants to see Jean-Paul, but he doesn't want to see her until he does what he needs to, which he's not sure what that is. Alone, Jean-Paul draws a mock-up of his new costume, think Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, and he knows what he needs to do. Just don't tell mom slash Leslie. Elsewhere, the imposter and Jerry look at a map to see where to go find Lilhi. Jean-Paul gets his new costume and explains he needs to try to save the imposter. He puts on the new costume and feels different, though he doesn't know if it will trigger his abilities. Bruce wishes him luck and gives him car keys. On the way, Jean-Paul ignores a family who has totaled their car into a tree. He doesn't have time for that. He's got a mission. A bridge is down. He swims a river. No stairs. He climbs a mountain. He encounters Jeremiah in Azriel's clothing, but he is easily defeated. Lilhi is thrown off a cliff by the imposter, but Jean-Paul rescues her and climbs back up for a final confrontation. Jean-Paul does his best to talk to the imposter, but he sees no point to his life without the act of obedience. That's the imposter. They fight without masks, and the imposter falls dead. Lilhi is untied, and I have no idea where Jerry is. I actually looked a couple times. Jean-Paul leaves immediately to go help that family he passed before, and then he returns and spends the winter in the mountain alone. <laughs> and that, that ends our prophet arc, I guess we could call it. Whoo, boy. Okay, let us actually talk about the covers first. Uh, and there is, I think it might be um, in the Cassandra one, but I hope that uh, Carolyn noticed something on one of these covers that she'll talk about before. But yeah, so let's talk with 72. Uh, yeah, general design, uh, what, you, what you think about <laughs> the cover. And they all kind of have the same like design elements. It's abstract to a certain degree does it give you a sense of what's going on i mean what do you think about these about to me or carolyn Anyone? either one go ahead i didn't mind <laughs> the covers for like this uh, 72 and 73 they reminded me i remember during bruce wayne murderer there were a lot of comics or a lot of bat books that were kind of had these kind of like puzzle piece covers i remember yeah. specifically there's an issue of birds of prey that has a very similar cover and I believe the final part of Bruce Wayne Fugitive has that. You'll see it eventually, but during like the Bruce Wayne Murder of Fugitive storyline, there were like kind of puzzle pieces in the corners of the issues and they kind of came together in, in the finale. So this kind of reminded me of that. I don't know what they're going for, particularly 73. Yeah, where you have like, did you know what Batman's brain looks like? And then Oracle <laughs> looking like she's right out of uh, Goosebumps or something. But it's not like stupid. <laughs> I, think, I think it's eye-catching. Um, oh, I recognize the uh, the... Art style, I can't name the artist um, with, without help, but um, it's, it's 74 or 75's covers are standard. They're fine as artwork, but, uh, but like, they're not, you know, that notable. But, like, I, I thought that, like, 72 and 73's covers were, at the very least, interesting, even though mm -hmm. I didn't know what, what, the, what the schema was going for. Carolyn, does this count as floating head? Uh, 73? 
Well, I mean, the idea of the floating head was just that across 108 issues of Birds of Prey, you very often didn't have Barbara on the cover at all, even though, oh, he's mad. I'm talking about Barbara. What? <laughs> he's at no, no, enough. No, 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 I'm no. just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no, my, my, my butt hurts, so I need a pillow for the chair. Okay. So, um, so anyway, Barbara was often not on the cover at all. And then most of the time when she was on the cover, she was just ahead. So in my book, I was making the argument that it seemed like they just didn't know, it, it, in contrast to the other birds always being full body. So I was making this argument that it seemed like the artist maybe didn't know how to deal with her in the chair. Like they knew how to draw women looking active or looking broke back and sexy, but they weren't really sure what to do with her in the chair. So very often she was like this floating head in the background. But technically he is that. I mean, he is by definition a floating head. Yeah. But not for the same reason, I think. I do yes, like how it's was. both uh, Oracle as a human being and Oracle as her computer mm-hmm. moniker, as you can see in, in 73. 73 is a bit more quizzical, like the different symbology or, you know, just what is happening. Whereas 72, I yeah. feel like gets more to what the story is about with this, um, you know, at the imposters behind him. And it kind of seems like he's under control and you have this prophet who uh, is supposed to be ridding the world of evildoers, but it seems really sinister. But yeah, 73 is, is a bit of a puzzler. Um, you know, was Batman at the computer? I don't know. I think Oracle is doing all of the legwork there. So yeah, that one's interesting. What about 74? Oh, pretty standard one. Yeah, it's just Azrael. Yeah. And who know? I, I assume it'd be the faux Azrael, right? Which is a shame because that's my, it's probably my favorite Azrael costume. I always thought it was very distinctive and um, very striking. And none of Jean-Paul's costumes after this, I thought kind of like, because there's a shot where you see all of them to this point. And I, I kind of thought they were all sort of like pretenders to the throne. Yeah. And then 75, because it is an oversized issue, 75 is a special number for, you know, comics getting up there. Congratulations. Uh, We see sort of specters of his previous costumes and then a gravestone as well. Uh, Thoughts on on this final cover? Yeah, it lends credence to my theory because it says exercise climax. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She comes out of nowhere with this stuff. Way back when. All our archives are own.com. I thought we were making this an extra special podcast. Oh, that's true. But hey, I actually, I used to read a lot of Dick and Babs fan fiction on that, uh, that particular site. I will. You told me in graphic detail. (laughs) I don't think it was graphic. I think I just shared with you what happened. Anywho, Batman shows up. That's just the there you need to know. Okay, so I, you know, I felt a bit like Professor Allen, who has at least once for me thrown me into his podcast, gives me an issue that's out of context, and he got it for 25 cents because that's his shtick. And then I read it, and he has to say, like, does this, is it worth 25 cents? And you're, like, floundering around, like, I don't even know what was happening in there. I threw you into this. Uh, I apologize for that. But, I mean, do you feel like it was a worthwhile story completely out of context? Uh, Did you enjoy it? Were you able to – I'm sorry that I didn't give you the background in advance, but were you able to kind of catch up and and figure out what what was going on? I mean, what did you think about this story? Professors first. Um, Yeah, I liked it. I I haven't read a lot of Osriel. I mean, just standalone Azrael. I just know him more from being in other titles. So I was fine reading it. I mean, I think Jeremiah was a little overdone yeah. with the crazy. But yeah. um, 
he, it, that he could have been more subtle and still, I think, accomplish the same kind of thing, not just in, in, in text, but in art also, um, you know, really exaggerated, wild eyed mm-hmm. kind of look. But yeah, I thought, I mean, I, I like a story that has more than one bat family person in it. And I did think the costume thing was kind of funny because it's like, okay, I mean, is it super duper different? And how are you swimming with those giant fists? I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, they have like four fingers. <laughs> his hand, there's a, there's a panel where like his hand is the same size as his head and Lily's breasts are like the same size as her head. And I'm like, hmm, this is telling me a lot about <laughs> what they're trying to draw my attention to. <laughs> oh, man. Sometimes. But yeah, worth it. Sure. Yeah, I never read Azrael in like in like the uh, the pantheon of bad books of the '90s. I was never. It just never struck me as something that was going to interest me. I read, um, you know, a lot of the stuff leading up to Nightfall and his kind of stuff. Like in Contagion, there's Azrael issues that are pertinent to that story that I read, and they never seemed like something I wanted to carry on because it's all about the Order of Saint Dumas and international adventures and stuff. And as an adult, I find more to take away from that. I think it's. I think it's well. I've all. I don't think I'll ever not like Denny O'Neill. He's not a consistent writer, but I am consistently entertained by him more often than not. So I generally like whenever he writes anything Batman related or DC related. But um, so this issue, this story was fine. I completely agree, uh, Carolyn, with uh, Jeremiah Ar- not Ar- Jeremiah Tom- uh, Tompkins. Yeah. That like he, he was really OTT in the artwork, like to the point where like I was like, are they trying to go through some sort of like stereotypical ethnic signifiers with him? Because he's just he looks like a like a biblical character and how he's like rendered with his teeth all messed up and like all gnashing and spitting. And like his kind of evil is so archetypal of like religious zealots that you're very quickly going to roll your eyes at it because it's not, you know, threatening or menacing. It's just like, OK, this, this feels like it's trying to be a lot more scary than it is. And it's just kind of like exhausting to read. And you're really, those kind of guys, you really want to see their nose broken by the hero before too long. And I think he got, I think he got, he got off easy. Um, I think the idea of another Azrael is fascinating because loving Nightfall, you see how much crap Jean-Paul goes through with the system and all that kind of stuff. And for him to observe that with another character is interesting. Um, I was a little, I guess I was um, not paying much attention because I, I didn't know that the guy died at the end. Is that the grave that he's at in the, in the final issue, or is that like somebody else? Yeah. You mean the faux Azrael? Yeah. Yeah, I assumed he was dead, and, and that was his gravestone. Okay, I, I, I clearly wasn't visited. But where, I, where? I, I think <laughs> I was going to just going to say, our Azrael kind of looks like Gambit at the end of the last issue. Well, not me. I think what's going to attract both of yours, uh, Stella and Carolyn's attention, is like, you know, Batman, does he trust so-and-so? And how does he get on with Oracle? And Oracle calls him boss in this story, like, which I'm, which I'm more than happy to, to be audience to. And it's the more interesting <laughs> part of this podcast. Um, oh, the story in itself as an actual story, I think it's fine. If not, I don't know if this would let me read the entire series, but it certainly wasn't awful. I, I, my takeaway was much more, you know, with the Bruce and Barbara, Jean-Paul stuff. And I, and I will say, I, I actually genuinely enjoyed the, the Bruce and Jean-Paul interactions here because they have that history and because there's sort of that, that, that free tension between the two of them. I did like how that was depicted, but I'm sure that's not, you know, there, there's more we can say to the story than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will. I mean, I second or third, everything you said about the, the prophet. I mean, I think there's a reason why he's called that. It certainly is old Testament style uh, talking about doom and all of this. And of course the, the examples he had uh, from the Bible were, were old Testament. Uh, you know, I liked the, 
dichotomy between the two, or I guess juxtaposition between the faux Azrael and our Azrael, just because you, through that, you could see how far Jean Paul has come, just that he was this slave to the system and he fought and broke through it. And he's trying to, to save our, the imposter from that, but he just like, there's no life without obedience. Uh, so I enjoyed that. Uh, what I missed, though, is the relationship between Jean-Paul and Oracle, which was a bordered flirtatious, um, which I don't know if there was a change because now Oracle is basically, Barbara, is basically dating Dick now. But it just seemed like there wasn't that usual uh, joking between the two, even on that phone call. And really, I think the the relationship that was focused upon was Bruce and Jean-Paul, which was done rather well. My only problem is, of course, when I was reading it and Bruce is getting the updates from Oracle and, you know, of course he leaps to, oh boy, you know, the system's back online. And so, yes, I would ask, you know, why would you not trust him initially? And so when I think even Denny O'Neill understood that that was probably in the back of our minds because at the end of Carolyn's second issue, right, you assume that, oh, there's going to lay into him. I want you. But then I have the plot twist where actually no he's got all this evidence but the problem is he lays out all this evidence that this is clearly not you because it's not your mo you work alone but you know trust never enters into that and yeah i did jokingly say trigger warning and we could talk about it if you would like um i feel like it's the same thing with with huntress you know gosh yeah, <laughs> I, yeah i had to yeah there you go just you know they give and give and give and you know there might be a slip up here and there but he doesn't assume good intent. Uh, I, do you want to talk about this? Do you think it was fine? Like, yeah, he didn't trust him. But then when he got the evidence, he was on board and 100% on board. Uh, I don't know. Carolyn, you're usually on my side. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm on. What would you like to say about this? No, I'm, of course I'm on your side. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it just seemed kind of typical that, uh, you know, he's the detective and he doesn't trust anybody. Poor, lonely me with my giant family of people who love me. That kind of thing. <laughs> yes. um, but I, I thought that it, it made sense to me that the way it was put was, no, I, seven, I know he's not really guilty, you know, because that, that ties in with his core personality. But yeah, I mean, just I, I, maybe it was just the way that it was written could have been more subtle. Like for him to say out loud, okay, clearly that's it. He was in the same country as a bunch of people who died and they died by a sword. So it had to be him. It's like, that's pretty bad detective work. (laughs) Yeah. I also, um, I thought it was an interesting counterpoint for him to come right out and say, although I feel like the art doesn't quite agree with it because the way Bruce is drawn with kind of the black around his eyes or inked, I guess, you know, he has the kind of the black, it makes him look really severe in Mm -hmm. most of the panels where he's basically saying, he's talking about Leslie Tompkins and he basically says, I love her. Yeah. But the way he looks is so like, oh, I love her. (laughs) It's like, it's not, it's, it could be a much more tender moment than Mm -hmm. it is because that is, you know, he's, she has earned his respect a long time ago and and that's great. Don, any thoughts, Azriel and Batman? I think that like one of the really easy, you know, it's 1130 at night. I got to get the script in. What's a cliffhanger? What's, what's a hook for the story ideas you can do for a general Batman story is this person's betrayed my trust. Cause like they did it in like death of the family way back when. And I never bought that as a, as a genuine tension where like the Batman was like, he betrayed us. I think 
and yeah. like um this it's like he as a detective he's I, I i i do understand on a on a character level i showed mercy to jean paul i gave him sympathy to, to kind of carry on and if he's gone evil i feel responsible for that i mean it's it's cliche but it makes sense if, if, if he didn't feel that way I, I i would question it more so while it's a bit waning on one on a reader's patience it's not illogical but i think that like it's a, it, the pressure is put on in a, in a soap opera kind of way of, of like him going to oracle like you know oh no jean paul and it's just and like for all of it to lead up to this sort of like anti-climax um of working eh, you're fine um it does you, you do feel a little half done and that your time's a little bit wasted i mean it didn't piss me off but like it, it was a bit of like this feels there are other things you can make, make, draw the readers interest from this didn't feel necessary to push on to the extent that you did and maybe it is because of um cariello's artwork that has everybody looking crazy it's a little bit of a of a con just in, just in the kind of the delivery like there's one there's one panel in 74 where bruce is like half in shadow and stuff and he looks very severe and I, that's clearly the artist's style but like it it does affect the storytelling and it affects your, your read of it because this, this kind of crap does bring on the unending questions of, you know, trust and loyalty and who he values and why does he ever value women and all that kind of stuff that like, it's completely fair and consistent, but it's, it's really exhausting every single time we come across these kinds of stories. Cause it feels like we've been talking about this for like a millennia at this point. You smile. <laughs> There's, I mean, an easy answer to that. He just has to, you know, change a bit, you know, but I guess he never will. He does until he doesn't. I mean, like, yeah. he, he changed in Infinite Crisis. He changed in after Bruce Wayne Fugitive, you know, until people want to write him, until Denadia wants him to write it a different way. So, like, yeah. it's consistent until it isn't. Agreed. And I, I meant to say this before when you were talking about the way, um, since you mentioned issue 74 and the way, Jeremiah was drawn in kind of a bordering on ethnic stereotype is the nicest yeah. way I can put it right. I mean, it has these Middle Eastern inflections to it. Um, also in 74, there's this guy, are they supposed to be in Hong Kong? Now I don't remember. Yes. Okay. So he kind of, uh, he is talking to this guy and I just felt like it was drawn in 1942. Do you know the page I'm talking about? Yeah, he's all like, like, like his limbs are exaggerated and he kind of has this sort of like um, skeletal nose and like his, his teeth are all up. Yeah. 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 Big teeth, big eyes. And I thought, wow, that's, I understand you're trying to show that he's afraid, but you have to kind of be aware of how certain populations have been depicted negatively in the past when you do that. So that, and especially when Jeremiah is in the panel with the guy from ostensibly Hong Kong. It just, it was a lot in one panel. And you, you wonder if they feel, I don't think that they were like, I don't, I generally don't feel that they were aware of that, but like, there's also an idea that like, maybe they can get away with it because the faux Azrael is Asian and he's not depicted grossly stereotypically. So it's like, oh, it's a diversity of diverse people. And it's like, no, you're still relying on hackneyed old hoary stereotypes. Is it because I, I feel that like that kind of awareness uh, had fits and starts of ending for a long, because I remember reading like like a it was, a, it was some Spider-Man comic where an Asian person was straight up colored yellow, and that was in the mm-hmm. 90s. So it's like I'm not surprised that it's this bad, even up to, into 2001, just because I think the conversation wasn't as public as it would have been as it, as it is now. Which is interesting. I mean, given our discussion on seven, eight, and nine, Donovan, how we were actually praising how both Cass and Shiva were drawn. So it's just interesting that it's not true across the, like it really depends on the book of, of how well diff- 
different ethnicities are depicted. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, Damien Scott was much more observant of how to, or just a bit, or just straight up better artist. Come, come down to that. Yeah. Did you guys feel the loss of Leslie Tompkins in this particular arc? Because we really only see her once, I think, if if that's true. I think when Batman visits her, but there's so much internal conflict with Jean-Paul because he doesn't want to go back to this violent uh, lifestyle that he had before. And she is always in the back of her mind, but we never see her. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that like a weakness to this particular arc? Does it really matter that she wasn't there and we only need his internal conflict? Because no. of her appearances in No Man's Land, I was going to say that like, uh, and I've read some other issues of Azra where she shows up. I imagine that she would appear as consistently where maybe the respite from this story doesn't doesn't uh, impact potentially more appearances. But I think that's, that's an interesting point. I think you can always use more Leslie Tompkins um, because she, I think she tends to humanize Bruce more. And um, especially in, I mean, a lot of the books, a lot of, I mean, this is true even today. If you pick up an issue of Batman, it, it might have no women in it. So she's one of the women in the Bat universe, and she's just this professional, helpful, smart person. Yeah. Uh, with Oracle, I you mentioned it a couple of times, Carolyn. I agree with you. I don't know if Don disagrees, but I agree that using the moniker the boss seems a bit off, as if he is no matter what. I can see him being, I mean, he's the leader of the Bat family, but I feel like at this point, she's almost like a solo agent who also doubles in the Bat agent, but she has, you know, brought up her own mission and she is well known throughout the dc universe so i agree that calling him the boss seems a, a bit odd uh, and more than once too so it yes. wasn't just i don't know i guess okay. am i forgetting that that used to happen a lot in other books well she hasn't been using that in birds of prey because he's been you know annoying i mean i was going to say that like uh i get that being a bugbear because she's such she's so much of a solo character but she did call him that a lot um, did she? i don't know okay. if it's the first time that she has done it but i when i read that i was like um oh this, i'm sure this is going to come up at the same time like i remember this happening frequently I and mean, maybe it was afterward after this but um or maybe it's just o'neill but like uh whether this happened or not it's not something that's completely foreign to how she's been written or how she might be written later on okay I, yeah i could see it uh now i'll be on the lookout frankly but i could see it if in the typology, if they had like italicized it, so it was like, okay, boss. So there's a bit of like Stop a Tony Chica, yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. But you know, I, I like Barbara as Oracle. I just feel like she has total ownership of who she is. And while she may work with Batman, I feel like he's not really the boss of her, which sounds like a child. You're not the boss of me. But honestly, you know, she's working with the JLA, she's hacked into the government, she's taking funds from block. I mean, I. I just don't see it. But uh, this was also, was this also where he was breaking into her security system? Or am I getting that mixed up with Batgirl? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was slightly comedic just because, you know, she really likes to take pride in her security systems. And he happened to break both of them and makes the joke of like, it, it was a bit difficult. So that was, that was fun. But Oh, we're nodding listeners. We're nodding right now. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm not yeah, sure if the fact that he didn't at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and in the previous, what was it, Nightwing that I did with Josh, uh, he popped in too, like he was able to. So I don't know what's going on. I guess they just are that good that they can break through. But any other thoughts on this particular story? Um, I mean, I, I sound like you guys were a lot more optimistic than I was anticipating because there is a lot of, um, of 
male angst. What did Harry call it? The uh, the masculine dementia in this that um, I thought it made for kind of an eye, I, I would imagine it would kind of make for an eye rolling comic book. But I guess it's, it's just kind of typical of the times. I think it's fine. You know, it's not the best, but it's also not the worst, but it also has some problematic elements. So I, I think it's a little bit above average. Yeah, I think on the on the angst, I'm not against male angst stories in isolation. I'm I the problem I have with them is I don't need 90% of my superhero stories to be that. You know, it's more the repetition of them and the lack of maybe exploring other stuff that could be explored that I have a, a problem with, but no, in individual stories it's great. I mean, some of the best stories are those stories. Yeah. And I think there's enough uh, good stuff and good dimensions to this particular story to not wear you out on it. I'm being told my internet connection is unstable. Hopefully it comes back. Uh, (laughs) Donovan fell down. But, you know, I think once you get past the first two issues and and Bruce and Jean-Paul are actually in the same room, you actually see the loving Bruce that I really enjoy. And I felt like he was a brother or maybe a father, depending on how you see it. But just like he'll do whatever Jean-Paul needs. He's, He's there to help him. He literally also uh, patches him up. So I think there are some positive aspects to that as well. Uh, what would you give this out of 10 uh, chubby repairmen? I lo- wait, wait, wait. I just have to say <laughs> that he has the bat suit on under the fat suit is so good. I know. So good. <laughs> I, that's one of my favorite weird things about Batman. Whenever, especially if he had to put a keeping mask over the cowl. <laughs> I love that. Man. Uh, okay, sorry. No, that's okay. I We didn't even talk about that at all. I mean, I absolutely knew it had to be Batman because I thought, why is this comic right now focusing on this elevator repairman? But uh, no, that was... I, especially because everyone was going, listen to me. No, listen to me. And then he's like, obey me. It was pretty <laughs> ridiculous. But yeah, so grade out of 10 chubby repairmen. Seven fat Marios out of 10. <laughs> he did kind of look like Mario. <laughs> um, eight and a half, a solid B. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I think I'm going to, uh, I can't believe it, but uh, agree with Donovan and give it a a 7 out of 10 chubby repairmen. Uh, There are no listener emails. Uh, Remember, you can always write in to backrolltheoracle at gmail.com or tweet uh, Carolyn. She won't respond at all. But (laughs) we're going to take a break uh, for the audio listeners and not for the video listeners, but, or watchers. When we come back, we will review Batgirl number 10 and 11. But first, Zias' Radio Hour featuring Thanks for the Memories by Fallout yeah. Boy, which is <laughs> a good one. <laughs> Gonna make it bend and break. Say a prayer, but let the good times roll. In case God doesn't show. And I want these words to make things right, but it's the wrongs that make the words come to life. But who does he think he is? That's the worst you got, but put your fingers back to the key.
Uh, we're back. Sorry about that. Technical glitches. This is part two. We were just talking about, yes, clothing that we are currently wearing. So Don's got his politically crazy. Yep. I I'm a patriot. There you go. And then Carolyn has her Comic-Con. Yes. Raphael Abuquerque, I believe, designed one. Yeah. Bad girl Burnside. There you go. And then I also said a nice thing about how I wore it today because that's where I met you too. Oh, yes. Nostalgia. Yep. And you got your Eisner, of course. <laughs> yes, I did. Carolyn, let me ask you this, because uh, I think I ask Stella this like every two years. I'm not sure why I'm forgetting, but like, which is, what is your favorite Batgirl costume? Hmm. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, I like the Burnside one because I like the homemade nature of it. I like, you know, like it's a jacket that's not like Lycra doing sock boobs. Um, and I <laughs> yeah. like, and I like the yellow Doc Martens, but I also like the classic yellow and gray. And I like the Cassandra, just all black. That could have more to do with the art and less to do with the costume. You know, like when she's just yeah. like, like coiled and stealthy and doing cool stuff. So I don't know. Do you have, I assume you have a favorite. Honestly, I really like the, um, like the black, the yellow cape. The one that she had in the new Batman adventures. Mm-hmm. Like I really liked that as a kid. I, I, I don't think I dislike any of her. I don't love the Yvonne Craig costume. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I do like the, the Burnside suit. I do like the gray suit. I like Stephanie's suit. I like Cass's suit. But I, I don't know. It's just, I, I, think she's had, I think she's had a consistently a, a good set of suits, or the, the Batgirl mantle has. Maybe not Beck Kane. But um, most of them have been kind of cool, so I, I'm always curious about that. So... Whenever you're ready, host. Yeah, we're we're good to go. I'm. It's converting while you're going to be going. So, yep. Batgirl number ten. Batgirl defeated. Uh, the write the writing and the art team is same as it has been. Kelly Puckett on writing. Damian Scott and Robert Campella on artwork. This issue is previous place of business as he he stalks his uh, his porn boss, and we see panels and pages of him following her down the street uh, on the rooftops above. Batgirl is taking out several gunmen and thugs. Eventually, we see this scene play out where the man has a gun and he starts following Karen down an alley. Batgirl is alerted to a gunshot going off, so she arrives right just as he's about to shoot her. Uh, she tosses several batarangs at the gun, but his grip is too strong, so he's not releasing the gun. So Cass runs right into it and is shot in the head. <laughs> Oops, the gun's on the ground. This does not stop the, the gentleman as he picks up the gun and angrily accuses his boss of thinking that he's stupid. See, I know I didn't belong in the job. I, I know I sucked, but I thought I, I belonged. And you don't understand how, how that is. Batgirl wakes up just as he shot her. And uh, seeing the, the late Karen on the ground, she goes ham and starts to just beat him silly. Uh, but he's not going down. It's, it's kind of, um, you know, no matter how tough or how hard she hits him, and it seems to do some harm to him, He's not losing consciousness. So he's like, I just, just, just leave me alone. He takes the gun, puts it to his head, pulls the trigger, but the bullet falls to the ground and he is completely unharmed. So we cut to Oracle, back to Oracle's watchtower where Barbara has now learned of the entire situation. And that, he was apparently superhuman, but he never knew it. And this whole situation is just one unfortunate night in a list of long nights. So Barbara says, look, you want, you're going to want to talk about this. This, this stuff can kind of stick with you. Forget about tomorrow. Let's just do something normal. Let's relax. Let's try to act like real people and have a real life. And Batgirl says, no, training. And that's Batgirl number 10. Uh, should we cover them individually or together, what do you think? I mean, I think that, like, this is pretty different from 11. So, I mean, this doesn't have to be too long. 
Okay, so so we can, yeah. Okay, uh, shall we begin with the cover? I like it. I mean, this is a this is kind of a dark issue, but I, I think that it's provocative. And uh, considering what happens, I, when you say Batgirl defeated, you think, oh no, she's been beaten in fights, or Cassandra's going to die. But it's more of a a um, not a moral defeat, but like just this is what the Bat family always try to prevent. And despite all of her skill, the fact that she was unable to prevent it marks as a defeat. So I think it's I think it's a pretty solid cover. Uh, Carolyn, thoughts on this particular cover? Oops. <gasps> what? <laughs> okay, so I like the the top of it. Batgirl defeated. That looks cool. I like the silhouette of the guy um, shooting the woman. And then you go down, and Cass is slumped, and her body looks kind of you know you know like small and muscular, like it always does. But she's kind of lying down, and you got these two hard baseballs on her chest. That not only is not what breasts do, it also makes the bat symbol look yucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen how like, like the illustration of it like is like three dimensional because of it. Um, yeah. You know, this this I mean, yes. besides being called Professor P, you're gonna get a new nickname, but I'm not gonna be the one to give it. If they wouldn't, if they wouldn't constantly provoke me, I wouldn't always be angry. I guess so. Yeah. Could it be she has like a soft shell underneath, and that's just the mold? You know, I'm trying. She gives me a look. My goodness. I was. I, I keep. I keep. There are sometimes I remember when I was younger that I thought that the costumes actually were like kind of the hard. You know how in the movies they had that kind of fake musculature. Like I remember when I was younger thinking that that was like how it was in the comics, just because like that's how they looked. But like with this, it's been shown to be kind of like leather and stuff. So yeah, it makes sense. No, and I think that if you're going to do something armored, um, and very often you see this in movies and stuff, like when you see armor that goes out and then in and then out and then in, like it's wrapping each breast individually but really that makes no sense because it means that there's a hard part in between that if someone just pushed on they would kill you yeah you know what i mean like instead of being instead of being armor that goes across like this it goes in and then back out and that middle part is just waiting to be impaled into somebody They basically need to do research, I think, on like Amazonian warriors and or breastplates like that uh, to see because they were you could tell like there was definition there, but it was a continuous stream. It was flat and then just rounded out a bit. So that would defeat that. But yeah. okay, Yeah. yeah, So this it's like the difference between a sports bra and a regular bra. Right. Yep. That's all. Yeah. Well, you know, this is why she's here, folks, to correct uh, physiology. I feel like Donovan yeah. defeated. <laughs> no, I like I like most. I like two thirds of the cover going down, and there then it's like, mm, no, there you go. Yeah, so this was this actually took me by surprise a little bit. I think Don, you warned me a bit that they were almost one shots. These two. Well, the next one's not necessarily because sort of uh, comes together, but yeah. What are your thoughts on this particular issue that? It was a bit quizzical as a mystery. Who is this guy? What's his vendetta? And then, you know, how does Batgirl come into play and what lesson does she learn? So, yeah, thoughts on 10. I, this, I mean, this is, this is kind of, I'm going to say this is why I like this book. This is part of what, the storytelling is part of why I like this series so much because it doesn't feel the need to get into, like, like angst. I mean, the, all, the, the through line through a lot of these issues, because this is a lot like issue two, where she went to save, um, 
the kidnapped guy. Like it's all kind of building towards, you know, the making of Cassandra Kane as a hero, which isn't to suggest that she's not, she's not been her or before, but like kind of shows her all different angles of crime. But you have Barbara there to tell her what, what can happen if you let this stuff kind of get to you or what you might experience. I mean, there's a later issue where like, you know, she's like dealing with like deactivating a bomb and stuff. And like, she kind of relates about her state of mind and everything like that. And to me, this kind of builds towards that larger character arc, but it works as a done in one where it's a comic book because he, there's a, there's a superhuman element that I'm not a million percent sure how much that plays into the angst of him being fired and him feeling like he didn't belong. Although maybe one can infer that he, he never felt like he belonged because of that. And he just never knew, which is a little bit, there's a little bit of, of like succinct writing in that, which maybe there, there could be more shown on the page, but I like how little, you know, it, I think, I think it does a lot in terms of, render, you know, kind of bringing out your emotion while reading it while, while saying very little. Um, there, this is one of those issues that like, there's, there's not much dialogue. There's pages and pages and pages of action that, that say that, that, that are more than people swearing or screaming. And a lot of stories where people fail to say people are, can be depressing, but I think this is done in a way which just feels, I don't, I don't feel like I'm going to cry at the end, but it's just, it's just it, it feels like an honest story. So yeah, I, it's, there's no, I don't think there's a million things to say about it, but I really do like it. And this is kind of like, you know, why you don't, you don't, don't see comic books like this anymore. You just don't. I think the needs of the industry don't allow for this kind of story, kind of, kind of story, or these kinds of stories. And I think that, that that stories like this makes me go back to why this is one of my favorite characters because she had these kinds of stories, and it, and it built towards a very interesting character. And you don't get these stories in other heroes um, or other Batgirls, to be completely honest. So it's you know it's very um, it's very short, it's very uh, succinct and slick, but. Um, I like it because of that, or in part because of that. Do you want to go next? Oh, uh, no, I like it too. And I agree. These, this is why we like superhero stories, because it shows us the making of uh, someone who wants to do good. And they're not, they're, they don't always do everything perfectly right, but they're going to keep trying um, because there's going to be someone else to save the next night and they want to be there to do it. So yeah, I think it's a it's a very cast kind of story. You kind of don't have these stories with early Barbara because even in her origin, her not year one, but her first origin story, it's like I'm going to make this costume to make my dad angry, and what a fun adventure to go out and do this, right? So it's like it doesn't start out with this I want to do good kind of thing. Maybe you have it a little bit with Brian Q. Miller's Stephanie, the kind of you know, I'm going to try hard sort of thing, but it's not presented like this. I think that that's one of the many things that makes the cast stories special. And there is one of those panels in there that, um, that I really like her costume in where it's like, she's kicking her foot is kind of in the foreground yeah, and her foot is like the biggest part of her, but you can see she's just all muscle and all stealth and all seriousness. And she just looks so cool. And she looks so tiny, right, compared to all these big people that she's knocking over. That's very cast. Absolutely. And, and, and I said it again uh, last time I was on, I, I broke down the doors of this podcast, talking about, like, the, the Shiva issues, that this book is, this book um, reads totally unconcerned or un- and uninterested in, like, signifying that you're reading a story about, like, a woman in an action genre, which... You know, there are not to say that like every time a male writer might do that, it's bad. But like, um, I was even getting this in questions with my answers about like, you know, there are these cliches that you have with women in action that that you know kind of like you know 
remind you of who you're who you're watching and what you can watch out for. And this this could have happened to Robin. This could have happened to Nightwing. This could have happened. This could have happened to Oracle. And I like the fact that like it helps. It, it also helps make the Bat Family and the Bat books that more diverse in terms of like storytelling potential. And and it and it works better Cassandra's favor because she's a newer character. And I think that like because it's not you know Bat Girl all oh, man fellows line up for that. Like it's just you're not you're not here for that. And I think that these kind of this kind of story it's a dark story. I don't think it's I don't think it's a I don't think it's a uh, gritty story, but I think that like it's a strong story that shows you what kind of sh- how these characters can be shaped in ways which don't rely on storytelling cliches, or at least not a lot of them, except for the cover. How does this differ though from the first time this happened to her? Uh, an issue two. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it shows like the the, the, the variety of, of uh, opposition out there. Where that one was, you know, she was made aware of that guy's kidnapping a little bit too late because because he already got beaten up. Here, she's right there. She and she genuinely, I mean, she took a bullet. Like, I mean, she she genuinely did everything she could. I don't think I don't think Batman could come in and say, like, you know, you're fired because you suck. Like, um, Gosh. it's it's a, it's a situation where you're not going to. It doesn't matter if, for, for all terms of like people of service, and two, you're not going to be able to save everybody. And dealing with that helps you, you know. I mean, because like, I like the last page where she's where Barbara's like, let's take some time out. And she's like, no training. Like that's kind of the like the the recomposition of the story. So it's similar, but I, but if, if you're leading towards the oh they're just playing this on repeat, I, don't, I would I would disagree. Uh, I think Huntress took a couple bullets as well. I never said you didn't. <laughs> what is this? Like, I'm just oh, yeah, saying. I'm just saying. Where's her 10 out of 10 read? Yeah, you know what? I I mean, I'm going to differ from you guys. I, I, it was a fine story, but I didn't really like feel an emotional connection to it as well as I think issue number two. I don't know if it was the guy and I, I maybe wanted some more detail on why he was fired and, and a bit more of him. And, and it was clearly, I don't know if there was some sort of uh, mental issue that he may have had, uh, but you know, his mantra was like, be not nobody almost and, and trying to not be invisible. And he was hired for something and he, and it was just, I wanted a bit more. And I think that whole aspect of it uh, got too I don't know, either too convoluted with not a, enough explanation or maybe, you know, a different setting would have worked out more. Coming after a corporate boss, I wonder if maybe making it more personal would have been better for me anyways. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm the person who is different from everybody else. But yeah, it was just perhaps it was the place of this particular issue where we had just gotten off of this great arc with Shiva and now we're thrown into this one shot. Um, but yeah, it just didn't resonate as much with me. I mean, the beginning and the end was great. I mean, you can see the anguish on her. Yes, I absolutely see her trying everything she can. And of course she uh, fails, but that's, it's not the first time that's happened. She went up against a metahuman before. And of course, Batman said, don't do that. But I just, I wanted there to be a bit more. And perhaps, again, it was the antagonist. And maybe I wanted a bit more distinction from him. But maybe he was supposed to be a nobody for us. That it's just like, this is a stock character. And see what happens uh, for Cass. But I tried. I tried to like it. <laughs> Are you disappointed, Tom? <laughs> if you say, yes. If you say, I didn't like this issue, then I am. So all, I can, all I can do is cry. Yeah. I, can I just say something about the the corporate part? I actually like that because uh, you know, kind of said something about this while I was doing the 
Jeremiah Thompson recap um, that, you know, most uh, mass murderers in the United States are men and most of them have had some kind of domestic or dating violence connection and that partner gets killed and then they go and kill other people and then sometimes kill themselves. So that is a story, unfortunately, that we've seen happen in the United States across decades and it keeps happening and it only happens in the United States. And so is this one. <laughs> I mean, I know that we didn't mean to read them together, but, you know, so the, the Jeremiah one was, this is my ex-girlfriend, kill her first, and then we'll kill some other people. This one is, I just got fired by this woman, I'm going to kill her, and then kill myself. Mm-hmm. Suicide does happen all over the world, but murder by gun and then suicide is a uniquely American phenomenon. Um, that I talk about a lot in uh, one of my classes called Politics and Gender. So it resonated, I think, more with me because I read and think and talk a lot about that issue in particular. But I can see why if you didn't have that, if you weren't, if you weren't really so interested in that constant reoccurrence of that, um, then it then it would seem sort of like a paler imitation of issue two. Yeah. And I do see that. I actually just read a, a book about domestic violence, and that certainly was something that I kind of saw that, wow, you could have put this in a house, and it totally would have, yeah, seemed that way. I guess I just wanted more information about why he got sacked and who he was, but it is a one-shot, so the page count isn't there for us to get that information. I kind of you- felt like I don't care. Like, I don't care I don't care yeah. why you got fired. Okay. Don't kill people. Don't freaking kill well, people. I almost true. swore, but I didn't. I didn't swear. Oh. <laughs> you could have self. Nope. Remember, I gave the option to bleep if you would like to. Don't worry. We'll bring you back on Q&A. You can swear as much as your heart's content. Oh, man. Yeah, whenever that happens, portrait of a lady on fire. Uh- <laughs> well, I mean, like, uh, 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 but yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with her in questioning. Like, like do you, with more information, do, do you think that, like, you would have more sympathy or, or just more interest? Because I, I feel that like I feel like Puckett always knows where to put the focus in the story. It's like that one issue where that like assassin had kidnapped the guy and kind of messed with Cass's mind, and she's like, "Every time my memories or whatever, we don't know where her deal is." But it's a cool detail to show that these people just don't exist wholly for the needs of the story. Like, like there is at least implied more going on to them rather than than, than what we see on the page. And do you, does that not really work for you? I think I would like that. I mean, I talked about, you know, we can show empathy, I I think, towards violent figures and people that do actions that disgust us. I mean, this is something I talked about with Tom on the the Green Mile, just that, gosh, I feel compassion towards this one character, Delacroix, and he did a really terrible thing. And so... I, I feel like um, there's always there are always two stories, and it's interesting to to understand what uh, obviously not agree with what happened, but just understand what that backstory is. And so I, I just kind of got a piece of who this guy is, and I I wanted a bit more. I couldn't tell if there was some sort of mental disability, just like the way he spoke seemed like there was, and I, I wondered if there was some sort of discussion to be had about that. Um, is it just with this metahuman? I just wanted more on him. And yeah, I think that that's it. But you know, it's this is a cast book. So I guess, you know, it's not his book. So it, it's more about what she did. And and absolutely, I, I think it's great to see the links that she goes to. 
I was a bit disappointed at the end where she turns down Barbara because I think the healthy thing to do would probably be to do a normal thing. But I understand it being Cassandra that that is just how she works and she's going to train until this sort of thing uh, doesn't happen again. But I worry about her mental health uh, just because she's not perfect. And I think this might happen again. I'm sure it will. And so each time is this going to take a bit out of her. Um, but yeah, no, she's not a very healthy person. She's not a healthy person. No. Would you say her mental health or, or her reasoning in this regard is the same as Batman? Like, could you put Batman in there and be like, you know, he let someone down. I got to go train. I don't have time for ice cream with you. Or- oh yeah. Yeah. No, I don't have time for ice cream. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's where the similarity, like both, both he and Barbara have already said that she's similar to him. I think that that's apparent without coming on sp- spelling it out. And I think that, um, I, I don't see like I don't see Dick or Tim saying I need to train. I, they were they were probably carried around and like eventually find somebody to talk to. Um, that's not something that Cassandra is used to. So she goes back to what she knows she can improve on, which which I which I think makes her um, different than other characters and helps 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 you identify who each other person who the person is rather than the requisite comic book angst and guilt and feeling of you know um, vengeance on that kind of stuff. Any final thoughts or questions to discuss on this issue? I don't know. Are there? I actually had trouble coming up with questions for this entire episode. So we've actually been doing okay so far because, yeah, I had some troubles. Uh, I personally do not. Do we want to rate this one separately, I guess, since we've covered it separately? I would suggest that we do. Okay. Uh, Let's see here. Out of 10... I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of what a what would be a good uh, out of ten a good rating system. What's a good rating system? Uh, well, none out of ten Karens is a threat of dark. Karens. Um, out of ten ten superhumans. Okay, out of ten superhumans, what do you give Batgirl number ten? <laughs> uh, nine. <laughs> nine. Wow, you're lucky. I'm gonna give. <laughs> Just saying. I, ooh, I, I'll give it an eight, an eight out of 10 superhumans. Is that honest or is that, is that under, under peer pressure? That was under peer pressure. I really wanted to give it a seven. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like the same as the, the previous issue. Um, yeah, it just was, I wasn't as engaged with it. I was, again, it could be where it fell because that does sometimes affect my engagement level in terms of its arc and listing. Okay, well, we're at 11. Maybe I'll grade that higher. Who knows? So what happens in Batgirl 11? Well, the cover should make you happy. This issue, Batman does. Yes! <laughs> Which, does that happen, Carolyn, in this issue? You know, I enjoy that it's a tie-in to the Birds of Prey issue that we covered from the same yeah. month, February 2001. But then I was disappointed that the Osriel issue didn't say it. Yeah. Especially oh, yeah. when especially when he got thrown out a window. Oh, except yeah. that except that was March 2001, not February 2001, yeah. but they could have they could have come on, come on, put that together. <laughs> I don't know why they did that. I remember when they did that back in the day. This but I did guys. No, I laughed out loud when I saw that. Yeah. So Batgirl number 11, Puckett, Scott, and Ink by, you know, I, I don't have the, the, the first and last name. Uh, Mr. Coy Turnbull and da- Damian Scott are on pencils, and Dan Davis is the inker. Now, this is, an, this is an interesting term because this issue primarily focuses on David Kane, Beard Assassin, and the uh, surrogate father of Cassandra Kane, 
as far as we know right now. So he wakes up in a hospital room needing a drink. He's pretty much in traction. He's bandaged from head to toe, looking like Spike Spiegel with a broken nose. <laughs> and uh, a shady guy with glasses comes in to uh, who, who is speaking. What's it? What do I say? Euskara. I'm sure there's a language. And uh, he's like, you know, I'm going to kill you, David Kane, for the things you've done in the past. But Kane, being a master assassin, takes care of him with no problem. Uh, he manages to escape the hospital bed and go to a nearby bar. Uh, angrily asking for a drink and we're kind of cutting pretty quickly but he tells a woman that that um he's chatted up about how he took down the batman and this is how batman dies because oh yeah i fought the batman and he gave me all these bruises but i shot him in the face he never saw it coming and she says i thought you said he beat you up and he's like oh yeah so we're understanding that like when batman met him the last few issues uh he kind of beat the pants off of him because of like you know the footage that he saw of oh i don't know him shooting a little girl in the back so this woman is like, you know, oh, I can make you forget all about him, honey. And he's like, really? Can you kill 20 men with your bare hands? And she's like, what? No. He's like, uh, get away out of here. You're out of me. So we see that Batman has <laughs> taken his, 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 uh, his footage of young Cassandra uh, during their training because he's, had, he's kind of had it with, with uh, watching that. And he says, uh, those films are as close to Batgirl as you're ever going to get. I'm sorry, he just left him with those tapes, uh, but the government has seized them because they, they, they seized his home. So Kane is on the hunt for those. He returns to Gotham, goes to an evidence locker, uh, sneaks in, knows how to kill anybody so he, can, he cannot attract Batman's attention, escapes with the tapes, but he's caught by Batgirl. And this is interesting because he, he's, he's not in fear of her, but he kind of reacts as though he is. He's like, I, I was just leaving, but, you know, I don't want any trouble. And she pounds on his face. Once she understands what he's what he is stealing, Kane is begging, like, please, please don't take them. They're all I've got. And we don't see Cassandra's wearing her mask, so we don't see her her facial expression. Although she does look rather angry, so she leaves him with his loot, and he apologizes, and he leaves. And the last thing is is Batgirl saying bye after he's gone, and that's Batgirl eleven, in which Batman died. He died finally. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Maybe Huntress will be next. Yeah. Well, just wait until I do. Well, no, never mind. I was going to say Bruce Wayne murder, but I guess not. Okay. Let's talk about Kane's characterization first, I think. What do you What do you think about his characterization here and just the desperation that he shows throughout this particular story? I want to hear what Carolyn thinks first because I, I, I really don't know. Okay. I just want to say I did just look up Euskara. It is what the Basque language is called in the Basque region. So good job, DC. You didn't make up the name of a country like you usually do. <laughs> really? So, that is, so I, yeah, exactly. So I take it back. My skepticism, I was wrong. I guess I'm more used to David Kane feeling, being like more in control and confident than, you know, kind of how he is in the beginning part where, you know, he's going to get out of this hospital bed. Um, so I guess that I'm assuming that's intentional so that when you see him looking kind of desperate with Cass, you're supposed to think, yes, he really does care about her in his own weird way. And he is a little afraid of her. He's afraid of being rejected by her. He's afraid of not having these tapes or whatever. So that's how I read it. Is that how you both read it? Yeah, because I, these early, like these early, like this early years of David Kane's depiction by Kelly Parker, I really like because subsequent portrayals have, have shown him to be it's kind of like how they did shiva i just like this one-dimensional villain so she can fight it's like oh like he'll, he'll say stuff like oh you were never important to me and i trained a million kill children but like here he, he's a, he's a bad person but he does genuinely genuinely 
care for Cassandra. I mean, in, in their shared first appearance, when she speaks, he, he cries that, that, that scene that, that happens. So I buy all of this, um, uh, his desperation, his anger and his fear and then kind of seeing her again. I, I think it's all really cool. I think that like, it's an interesting thing to take, an ish, take time out of an issue to, to kind of present that because it, it, it implies that we'll be seeing him again. And it, and it definitely kind of like foreshadows uh, more kind of uh, spotlights on their relationship because he's still out there and she's now Batgirl. So what might that mean for the future? Um, so uh, I'm not, to, to me, this all tracks. Uh, you know, this is all definitely who he is. Yeah, I guess I was thrown off a bit. I thought just like the prophet, you know, and his extremism, I just thought that this was extreme. I mean, going after those tapes as if that was the only thing like water in a desert. And absolutely, you know, the beginning, David Kane, but I'm just thinking back to other appearances I had seen with him. And clearly he's on the edge. He's a shell of a man, as they say. But it just seems like he really, really lost something. And I wondered, I guess maybe it tracks. I mean, I do totally see that he cares for Cassandra. But to this extent, it, it's like borderline. I mean, it freaks me out a bit, though, the way that he... It's almost like she's a possession. To, like, that's how it's presented for me anyways, that he's lost something and he can never get it back, but he's going to somehow hold on to some of these reminders of her. So it it's, uh, it's interesting, but it's borderline creepy for me, at least in how I read it, just with how desperate he is. And then, yeah, that weird interaction with them, which was a bit of a disappointment because this is the first time that they've really seen each other, right? Since No Man's Land. And so that was anticlimactic. I mean, yeah. you kind of want something more emotional to happen. And he just is shocked and then scurries away and she says goodbye. Uh, so, yeah, thoughts on them finally meeting and how that was presented? Does that, you know, track with what's been going on? I mean, I don't know. It might, might very well be because I've read these stories so over and over again, so I'm used to them. So I'm, I'm less inclined to perceive them in a more critical light. I mean, I don't, I don't think so. Um, but like, um, when you say like, oh, it's the meeting of Cassandra and David Kane, you want more out of it. Do, I mean, I don't know. Do I, I mean, like, um, cause they didn't, never, they didn't necessarily have a lot of beef. She didn't attack him the last time she saw him. I don't, I don't remember. I mean, she stopped him from killing Gordon, but like, I don't remember her hitting him where now she's back girl. He knows who she is and he, she lets him go. But like, there's, there's shame in his face, and she, but she also doesn't like, she can't hate him either. I, I just find it to be very interesting, complicated and interesting. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily like, um, I'm sure the, I'm sure the solicit said the reunion of Batgirl and David Kane sparks will fly and, and, and it doesn't, but like, um, for what this issue gives us, like, I, I appreciate what this issue gives us rather than me putting, assigning it, um, some sort of like requisite storytelling, um, like, like things to kind of match up. Uh, what it is, it's fine. I don't know if I wanted like a, a huge knockdown drag out fight. Cause I think the, the emotion kind of carries is more so than like a lot of, um, a lot of action. I can see why they didn't do more between the two of them, because what would it have been? It, it either would have just been a longer fight or what, I guess I'm not sure what else the conversation would have been. Right. So, so I guess the length of it was appropriate. So you have the kind of the majority of issue of the issue showing his, now how what a great fighter he is and how tough he is and whatever but then when he sees her all that is gone all that toughness and all that fight is gone i i do if i could say that i would have wanted one thing different it's the buy i think that often um not not to take away the word buy but i think very often with cassandra there's so much burden on the artist 
when she's not talking to show through body language <clears throat> what her emotions are. And I felt like with that by, I couldn't quite tell. Mm. Okay. But you, you think she was sad? You think she was happy? Like, like you were completely I, bereft? Uh, I'm looking at it right now. I don't know. Because her face is totally blank. And she's sort of, her head and her hand are on the same plane. <laughs> so it wasn't like a hesitant bye. And it wasn't like a see ya. So I'm not really, I don't know. I'm not really sure what I was supposed to take away from that. I guess I, I, when I, she's I, handing him the bag, I felt like I understood that body language better. Right. Like, I don't know. Somehow she looked like she's thinking about it. She's sympathetic and she's handing this sad old man the bag. I don't know. I guess I saw that, that final shot of her as kind of like a little bashful, um, a little like, I don't know, like, like she, she feels that she wants to show that she cares by saying bye. So it's it's a little it's it's completely opposite of how she was throughout the entire scene. It's a very like you know stringent you know dark crime fighter, and then she kind of, she, she looks the most to me she comes off as the most like young and like girlish there. Where kind of, kind of kind of waving with like her, her kind of twiddling her thumbs or whatever. It's just that's the kind of the kind of vibe that I get that I get from it. But you know I mean who knows it it, it, it is an, it, it is an, it, it is somewhat of a vague scene. I get I get I get the confusion. I do want to talk about the tapes because I think it's an interesting tool. I don't know. Just that these have popped up so often throughout this run. The short run, they've popped up. My first question is, why does Batman allow David to have the tapes? I feel like that's a strange move, even though he says this is the only... Yeah, I get what he says. And then why does Cass allow David to have the tapes? Why wouldn't he? I mean, it's not like, I don't know. Like, like what's, what's, where's the harm in it? Well, well it, Batman yeah. is famously empathetic, as you've pointed out many times. So that's why. Wow. Did you hear that? She just threw down a pair of gauntlets. <laughs> pair of gauntlets. Yeah. Two of them. He it's funny because, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was saying, like, he, he has a line where he says, um, where he, he's, he's, beating the crap out of him. And, and like Kane's like, you know, you think you're enjoying this too much? He says, you took an infant, trained her, twisted her, made her like us. I'm not enjoying anything about this. You know, it's over. You know, I've, I've been to you. The film's as close to the background as you're ever going to get. Like, I don't know. It's like, it sounds like he understands Kane's affection for her as, as twisted as it is. So he leaves him that bit of humanity. Um, but I mean, yeah, you know, it's it dep- depending on from writer to writer, whether that tracks or not. And well, then the next panel, he says, it's over, Kane. Your contacts, weapons, identities, they're gone. I'm leaving you your liquor and your tapes. Those films are as close to Batgirl as you'll ever get. So I guess it's a little empathy mixed in with you're just going to sit in a room and watch these things and feel sorry for yourself, and I'm okay with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, is, is it either or? Is, is it like... No, it's both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It's like, I guess he, like he, wants, he, he wants to punish him for what he did. And I, and I suppose there, there's a bit of punishment in like you know this this is that this is all I have of of, of her. So it, it, I suppose it it serves as both mercy and like you know kind of like stuck in this sort of like personal misery. I guess I just feel like it contradicts him beating him up and like look at what you did like this perversion you made you know or, or attempt at it, and here's that the evidence of it. So the fact that he allows that to exist, I think, is a problem yeah. because 
Cass is, she has grown out of that. She's a different person than that was, but now there's still a reminder of whom, whom she was trained to be. And so that's why I don't understand why you would allow those tapes to exist. I don't know why Cass would look at it almost without any reaction or emotion, put it back and give him the sack when we know that uh, she's had flashbacks and she's had trouble with that. So I feel like this whole tape thing is, is rather bizarre and in, in how it's being used. I assume it's to show us the Bat family is better than David Kane <laughs> with with their mercy. Sure. Um, but but the the question, I mean, and so the answer to your question is because the story demanded that the tapes uh. not be destroyed. But uh, but of course they should have been destroyed. What is the purpose of them? Yeah. Yeah, suppose that, that like it's playing off of the idea that this character. Like he's trying, he's trying to have the readers get into his head. And if you can at least sympathize with the idea that he cares for this girl that he raised violently as he did, then you would kind of want him to kind of have that, that bit of comfort and solace and knowing that like he can kind of reflect back on like, let's say the good old days and make you forget that he's a stone cold assassin killer. It, I guess it genuinely is um, having your cake and eating it too kind of thing that I never really put much of thought, thought of into that until now because the writing led me down the, the path of empathizing with him more than I, I would more often than not, or, or I probably should, given the context of like who he is and what he's done. Well, there you go. That's empathy for you. Any other thoughts or discussions on number 11? I think that's a, the whole bit about the tapes is a really good point, and it's a little bit muddied in terms of, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you call it ethics or whatever. I will say... <laughs> At this late date, it doesn't bother me, so it doesn't necessarily affect my grade too much. But I do recognize it as a point, so I'll, I'll, I'll say that I don't. I don't necessarily disagree, but I don't, I don't think that like it now becomes a problem for me in reading it. Yeah, I guess I just think of like I don't know, like snuff films. I mean, that's practically what it is. Or like, <laughs> what if there were? Well, I'm just saying that's practically what it is, right? Because there's like real violence happening in the tapes. Or like there's like abusive pornography or something. And then the star like grew and she uh, started a shelter and look at how far she's gone. But you've allowed that director or creator and person who had like abusive control over her to keep the tapes. That's kind of what I envision is like this abusive relationship. And you've allowed him to keep and hold on to the the evidence of the abuse. So I just, I, I find I, the whole issue is just, it was creepy in a way. I felt like there's just weird stuff that happened. But, you know, I'm the one that is always the naysayer on these cast issues, as you know. <laughs> yeah, you, you I are. don't intend you to be. You rank the Bad Girls podcast. I've never forgiven you for that. Whatever. It's a Barbara Gordon podcast, not a Cassandra Kane. There's some, that's called Silent <laughs> Night. Uh, but, you know, I don't intend to be. It's just like, this is how the I'm perceiving these issues and how they are reaching me, so. You know, I don't think I need to apologize for it. Any other thoughts on <laughs> number <laughs> 11? <laughs> Why can't you do what I want you to? <laughs> well, hey, I did really like 7, 8, and 9, did I not? That's true. Yeah. So, And Donovan won't be on for number 12, so I'm sure he's probably pretty bummed about that. But Professor Allen and I will be covering that as part of our summer blockbuster. Which one is that? What is it called? Officer Down. I had to think about it. Oh, yeah, okay. It's the tie-in that I don't, I think it kind of super Yeah, go nuts. Well, what should we say? Uh, Out of 10 uh, tapes? Tapes? Yeah, out of 10 tapes, (laughs) what would you give this issue? I would give it an eight. Oh, my gosh. What? It's not my my favorite, but I think, I I, I like the idea of, you know, okay, he's a sick SOB. Yeah, thank you. 
uh, I like the idea of showing, de- demonstrating, you know, his, his interest in Cassandra isn't, um, now that now that she's like you know, away from him and all that kind of stuff, it's not like he's trying to bring her back and, and shoot her in the back again. It is it is this sort of disease father and daughter relationship that I, I find interesting to read about, even if it is wrong. And I and, and and the artwork is not as good as it usually is because of, because of the the other artists. But like um, I think I think the story content is still enough for me. And I, and I like him recounting how Batman beat him up in the bar. So like, <laughs> stop laughing at me. <laughs> I give it an eight out of eight out of ten uh, snuff film tapes. Whoa, that's what you call them. I just call them tapes. Heavens. And yeah, yes. eight. Oh, eight for me also. Oh, good. Some good. sort I of all alone. Some sort of betrayal is going on behind my back. Uh, I'm I'm going to actually give it a seven out of ten tapes. Uh, and here's hoping that something special will happen to change my heart in the future. Who knows? I mean, you don't have to. As long as you, as long as you 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 enjoy the right stories. If you did not like the Shiva story. I would very much question our friendship. If you don't oh. like Batgirl 25, I will question our friendship. So. Batgirl 25. Oh, is that the one I have to look forward to? Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Well, let's see. Oh, oh, oh. I almost forgot. Now over to Chris for his cornucopia of curiosities. However, he's not. on to Zoom? He's not. Could you imagine? I mean, my Zoom is already broken once. I, I don't need to break again. But that'll be in the podcast that you can actually, the audio one that you can uh, listen to. Ah, that's like things starting to turn the corner. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batfans. Welcome once again to the Christmas Cornucopia of Curiosity segment. Thank you very much for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today, I'm reviewing Batman Adventures number 31. And once again, unfortunately, there is no Nightwatch segment for this episode. Batman Adventures number 31 was cover dated April 1995 and cover priced at $1.50. For this one, we have a creative team of Alan Grant as the writer and Dev Madan was the penciler. Rick Burchett was the inker and Glenn Murakami was the colorist. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. This story was reprinted in the Batman Adventures trade paperback, Volume 4, and does appear to be available on the DC Comics app for $16.99 for the entire trade itself. However, not the individual issue. And our story today is entitled Anarchy. Act 1, The People's Court. Across Gotham, television audiences witness that anarchy has kidnapped Donald B. Aritz, owner of Gotham Munitions, who sold millions of landmines to foreign governments. Anarchy tells the viewing audience that if they think Biarritz is innocent, to call a 1-800 number. But he better get at least 100 calls in his favor in 15 minutes, or else a nearby bomb will go off. In the Batcave, witnessing what's transpired, Alfred asks Robin if he should page Master Bruce. But Robin says there is no need, as he goes off into the night by motorcycle and, having traced Anarchy's phone signal, goes to a building rooftop. Robin confronts Anarchy, but Anarchy tells Robin he has one minute to save Biarritz. In a two-page action sequence, Robin jumps through a skylight, throws the bomb out the window, and frees Biarritz. The bomb goes off, and it releases a banner that reads, Weapons Kill. Act 2. Witness for the Defense at a Gotham Orphanage charity dinner, Bruce Wayne provides a check for $1 million. Anarchy lobs a gas bomb into the room, and it fills with green smoke. Bruce leaves the banquet room and goes into a hall, but before he can change, he is shocked into unconsciousness from Anarchy's staff from behind. Bruce awakens and finds himself tied to a chair, being televised, along with three other men in the same predicament. 
But each of the three are accused of offenses, of pollution, aiding dictators, and taking advantage of workers. Since Anarchy has nothing on Bruce, he is told by Anarchy that he will defend the men on their accusations. Bruce then makes a compelling argument for each of them with the adversity and tragedies they've all overcome. Anarchy says it's not enough, and the bombs will mark them all. And he departs, and he's confronted once again by Robin. Act 3. The Gentle Art of Philosophy Robin and Anarchy skirmish while debating philosophy. Meanwhile, Bruce gets free from his robes and takes a tablecloth and covers the bombs up as they go off, covering all the men with dye. Anarchy asks Robin what crimes he's committed. If it warrants all this violence, Robin punches him out, saying what he's done is enough. Bruce gives an okay gesture to Robin, and Robin swings off, wondering if Anarchy was right about a lot of things. The End My notes, per an online source, in his battle with Robin, Anarchy refers to the phrase Vox Populi, Vox Dei, as justification for his terrorism. Robin attributes the quote to the Archbishop Walter Reynolds, but incorrectly suggests Reynolds' addendum was, quote, but what if the people are mad, unquote. The addendum was actually made by Alcuin of York, who lived centuries before Reynolds. It's fitting that Alan Grant wrote this. He co-created Anarchy with Norm Brayfogle. This was a fast-paced issue with peril and action right out of the gate. Madden does a great job with action sequences, but in some places, Anarchy's neck looks elongated, and in other places, well, it looks normal. Madden does do a good job of incorporating Robin's face over the second and third chapters, giving this a great nostalgic vibe. And while Batman fans may be disappointed that the Cape Crusader doesn't appear in this issue, this is a great showcase for Robin showing off his smarts and fighting acumen. With that, I'm going to give Batman Adventures number 31 a well-earned 8 out of 10 bats. Listeners, don't forget you can also find Stella on the Required Reading Podcast. Shout out to Carolyn Coca, Donovan, and the Irredeemable Shag. I'd like to give a shout out to my friends, the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out their fine family of podcasts over on the Rad Adventures Network. If you have any feedback for this segment or for the podcast, please head over to the Batman Universe website. And if you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website, which has news, features, and a fine family of podcasts, follow the links to Patreon or by making a one-time donation with a link on the Batman Universe homepage. Thank you for your support. Listeners, you can also find me on the Professor Frenzy Show podcast, where my friend Jerry has some great upcoming projects. You can find us also with our Memory Minute Monday and Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories podcasts, as well as YouTube. And please do us a favor, check it out, and if you like what you see, click on the like and subscribe button. Thank you very much. Why are small-time Gotham hoods suddenly cosplaying as Napoleonic soldiers? Who are the two old men organizing LARPs with war reenactments with antiquated weapons? Will the next issue be Batman's Waterloo? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these war-torn, well-intentioned witticisms and whimsicals will be answered wistfully at the next whistle stop next time. Same stellar feed, same stellar sight. And I guess we're wrapping up here. Now we have everyone's favorite. Sometimes people come on just for this segment. It's the literature, <laughs> Tom, that's how Tom says. One. <laughs> yeah. Uh, literature recommendations. What do you two have for us? Uh, Carol, you go first. I might be reminded of who the author was on mine. Okay. I have a few. In terms of comics, I would recommend They Called Us Enemy, mm. George Takei, co-writers Justin Isinger and Stephen Scott, artist Harmony Becker, 
the short version, and I could go on about it forever, but the short version is it's about um, growing up Japanese American, and especially during the time of World War II um, in internment camps. George Takei being most famous as Sulu from Star Trek, but he's done a lot of other stuff as well. Uh, not unrelated is Donovan, did you go to that book talk, that Strand book talk? Um, something came up. I was not, I wasn't oh, able okay. to. Well, it was great. <laughs> so the, sure. the Strand Bookstore in New York City put on this panel for Asian Pacific American um, History Month called The Asian Pacific American Experience Through a Superhero Lens. It was moderated by Jean Lu and Yang. And the panelists were Sarah Kuhn, who wrote Shadow of Batgirl. And she was just as delightful on this um, book talk as you would assume she is by reading uh-huh. that awesome book. Artist Victoria Ying, who illustrated Shannon and Dean Hale's Diana, Princess of the Amazons, and Melissa De La Cruz, who wrote Gotham High. Um, so what I want to recommend is Gotham High, which I actually didn't really have any interest in before I saw the book talk. But the way she described it as, hey, why can't Bruce Wayne be Chinese American? And the answer is, there's no reason. So like he, his family, um, or his father is from Hong Kong. And his uncle Alfred is from Hong Kong as well. That's where their money comes from. Um, so it's him and Selena Kyle and Jack Napier and appearances by others uh, in high school. It's like a slice of life and a romance and a detective <gasps> story. <laughs> and uh, I totally, I just didn't think it would be that interesting. And it was, it was very good. So I recommend that. Now, um, books without pictures. <laughs> Um, Evie Drake starts over by Linda Holmes. You might know her from uh, NPR, from mm. the Pop Culture ha- Happy Hour podcast. This is her first novel, and it kind of reads like a first novel in some ways. But having said that, it's got interesting, flawed, striving characters that you can just get. Also, romance, uh, slice of life, and romance. People in their thirties who are starting over for various reasons. Um, second, Bowl Away by Elizabeth McCracken, which is a quirky New England town with quirky people. Three generations of a family in a bowling alley, but of course, it's not really about bowling, it's about life. So it's funny, it has a big scope, and, and it has heart and all that stuff. And then, nonfiction wise, Wow, No Thank You by Samantha Irby, which is just as great as her previous book, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. It's a collection of hilarious and poignant, but mostly hilarious essays about being 40 and writing and being an introvert and having trouble squeezing into your pants and step parenting. And having people mistake you for Roxane Gay all the time just because you're both black female writers. <laughs> um, so I would recommend both of her books. So five things. I hope that's okay. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got, yeah, half a dozen too. So yeah, we're okay. Fine. Don, how about you? Okay, so uh, a couple of things. Uh, this, is, this is books. That I actually watch a lot of anime, but like these are things I've read. Uh, some of you bought it. Uh, Mike Dark, Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. This is a pick for my um, the book club I'm in, Barnes & Noble. And I, I remember telling you, but like, I wish I knew what, what this book was about before I started reading. It's oh, about... <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it must have been surprising then if you didn't. Oh, boy. It, this is one of those reads where it was, I, I kind of hate read it because I hated what I was reading, but it was so well written. And it's, I think it's a good book because of it. But it's about an affair between a like 40-something professor and a 15-year-old girl. And it kind of goes back and forth between time, between like her as an adult and him being accused of other affairs and how she experienced that as she was coming up. It's, it's kind of a hard, it's a kind of, it's hard read, but I think it's very realistic in how the psychology is presented. And I think that it's um, very thoughtful in how trauma can 
affected person growing up in terms of like relationships they should not be in. So I wrecked that with, with a bit of a, a CW because it's, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty tough. I, I, I didn't love reading it, but, but it was one of those things where like, I, I couldn't put it down. Um, so I did that. Uh, less problematic, uh, sort of. If you listen to a lot of Kino Way, you know that both Harry and I are big fans of the media franchise Ghost in the Shell. And uh, the original manga by Masamune Nishiro is notoriously dense and hard to understand, at least when it gets further into it. I actually sat down and read it. And actually, it wasn't that bad. I really enjoyed it. I read the entire 12 chapters of the original 1989 manga. And um, what you can find, as you can find in bookstores, it's this Dark Horse translated it way back when, I think around the mid-90s, around the time that the movie, animated film came out. Uh, for those who don't know, it takes place in the near, the far in future of 2029, where the world has been cyberized and there's a lot more technology and internet capabilities implemented in our everyday life. And the main character, the major, is the lead of the sort of black ops government, sort of a secret public security team that kind of uh, inter- interacts in like a um, political scandals and um, attempted assassination, that kind of stuff. It's a very like 90s cyber cyberpunk kind of story, but it's really cool. And Masamune Shiro's ideas on philosophy and technology and the future of mankind are genuinely interesting as a comics creator. I found it, I, I found it to be very fun to read. And uh, uh, if you're up for it, I, I can recommend it. It's, it's not the easiest thing to read, but um, if you've seen the animated film and you enjoy it, or if you've seen Sandal Complex, or you've seen the Scarlet Johansson movie, um, you'll, you'll be interested to know where, where, the, where this came from. Because this is a very particular voice, which I think uh, I would like to recommend, because it's, it's, it's pretty unique. And you can find that in Dark Horse Comics. So yeah, I, I definitely recommend those. Can I ask a question? So since it's kind of dense that way, would you recommend watching the movie first? Or not the Scarlett Johansson? The other no. one. No, not that. That, that, one, that one sucked. But um, the 95 movie, I would very much recommend because when you're rereading, when you're reading the manga, you find what they took out of it. Like in the movie, it's the puppet master and the, in the manga, it's the puppeteer. And the manga ultimately ends up where the movie does. And I, I, I think that had I not watched the movie and then later on standalone complex, I would not understand what's going on in the manga. That really helps as a handicap as to, that kind of brings you forth towards reading chapter by chapter and you appreciate it more and more you i think that really helps you like it a lot more because i was because the reputation of the manga is that like oh it's silly and, and, and you know it makes less sense than like the complicated ideas already but no there's a real point there that i think um is valuable to read even if his later stuff is crazy um so i, I would recommend you know, the original the original manga comic book okay well i go through my slew of uh books here that i've read some oh, since last bye. time yeah, I know. Uh, so Fire and Blood by George R.R. R. Martin is the first part of the history of the Targaryen family. I reread all of Paper Girls recently, practically uh, what I think it took me three sittings because Tom and I did a special podcast that'll pop up in the summer on his pop culture affidavit. Highly recommend that by Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang. The Glass Hotel by Emily, whoo, St. John Mendel, though I sometimes wonder if it's pronounced Sinjin, like in um, Jane Eyre. Sorry, (laughs) Jane Eyre, I was trying to think. Uh, Vincent is a bartender at the Hotel Cayette, a five-star glass and cedar palace on an island in British Columbia. Jonathan Alkaitis works in finance and owns the hotel. When he passes Vincent his card with a tip, it's the beginning of their life together. Uh, and it goes through. There are several characters. It's kind of fragmented. It all circulates around a Ponzi scheme. And if you have read Station Eleven, this is not Station Eleven, just be aware. But there, it is in continuity with Station Eleven, but I won't spoil that. 
I was also reading some Cloak and Dagger uh, vintage stuff, which was fun. I read No Visible Bruises, where uh, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. And well, this was, I like this because it was 2019. So she also brings into thought sort of the, the current political realm and just like the people that are, you know, in leadership and so how that may have had an effect or have an effect or, you know, all that stuff. But I learned a great deal. I do recommend this. Obviously, it's not a light read. The Green Mile by Stephen King, which you can listen to an upcoming episode of Required Reading with Tom and Stella on this. It says, welcome to Cold Mountain Penitentiary, home to the depression-worn men of Eblock. Convicted killers all each awaits his turn to walk the Green Mile, keeping a date with old Sparky, the electric chair. And this follows Paul Edgecombe and several other inmates. And then, of course, John Coffey. Um, And then he, well, unfortunately, he falls into the magical Negro trope. But I won't spoil as to how oh, darn. that. Yeah. Oh, darn indeed. In True Blood by Truman Capote, okay. uh, which actually follows the uh, or talks about the murders in 1959, the small town of Holcomb, Kansas. Uh, four members of the Cutter Clutcher, sorry, family were savagely murdered by blasts from a shotgun, held a few inches from their faces. And uh, he reconstructs the murder. He goes through the investigation and everything. And then finally, the strange novel, it was interesting, but it's called Weather by Jenny Ophill. And this was another fragmented one, even more so than I think The Glass Hotel. Uh, Lizzie Benson slid into her job as a librarian without a traditional degree, but this gets her a vantage point from which she practices her other calling. She is a fake shrink. Uh, For years, she has tended to her God-haunted mother and a recovering addict brother. They have both stabilized for the moment, but Lizzie has little chance to spend her new free time with husband and son before her old mentor, Sylvia Liller, makes a proposal. She becomes famous for her uh, podcast, Hell in High Water, which is basically like the end of the world kind of stuff. And something popped up. Oh, 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 it finished. Okay. I was so scared about that. Uh, but she answers different emails. It's it's interesting. That one, as well as the domestic violence book I got because I follow Tegan and Sarah on Instagram. And those are both books that they had read. And I feel like, well, they're kind of like Megan Rapinoe's and the fact that they're making headway and, and having an impact, especially on the the queer community and, and um preventing suicides and things like that. So I I like to read what other people are reading to see why they're reading it. Uh, But yeah, I would recommend all of those things. Kind of a dark, I mean, with the Targaryens and all of that, kind of a dark list. I apologize about that. But, you know, we can do. Good news. My library has opened up to uh, the drive-thru. So I think I might be able to get some actual paper copies because boy the kindle it wears on me uh carolyn how about you i mean what what is is the library opening up or what's opening up there um so this past tuesday we started phase one of reopening which i guess means um curbside pickup of from retail and i think construction stuff like that and then if we continue you know going down all the markers then in on june 15th Maybe my library, and maybe you can go into retail stores. So not really sure yet, but probably the 15th. Okay. Don, are you? You were in phase one before I was. Yeah. And in fact, uh, my boss called me yesterday and saying that like they're starting to open up a bit more. So I'll be working again next week. 
Are you, is that good for you or not? I mean, are you concerned about going back to work or would you like to? I mean, I, 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 they were kind of having the online curbside thing going. And I was like, well, don't forget about a little done. But like uh, at the same time, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a little stressful because like, you know, it's, I got to try to make sure how things are at home. But at the same time, it's good to have income. But I also make sure that they honored my time off next weekend when I drive up to see a certain podcaster. So it's, it's, a, it's a boost of emotions. Ultimately, it's positive. I, don't, I mean, I, I disagree with the whole, you know, let's reopen the country when all the mental experts say, please don't. But they said that we we're going to kind of have it to where it was beforehand around uh, early March where, you know, still keeping the distance, social distancing and all that kind of stuff. We're going to open up more hours to the employees. So it's ultimately positive, but it's, it's still kind of a, a mix of, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And you have a Republican governor, right? Oh, my, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> no, I mean, that you can, it, the, the map is very clear who kind of felt pressure to reopen yeah. first and who did not. And yeah, you, can, you can see it by region. You can see it by racial composition. You can mm-hmm. map it in various ways. All right. Well, I'm just happy that, I mean, we'll have an election because I was thinking like, oh gosh, this is going to be like, we're going to extend emergency powers. It's going to be like Roman times where, you know, we've got a dictator for six months until we get in. So I'm just happy we're opening a bit so that we, you know, we can have an election. I mean, who knows what'll happen, but you know, at least we can get a choice. You know, this has been a pleasure. There was only one hiccup, which I just, you know, Zoom does this to me. I need to figure out why. Um, But thank you for being in the inaugural visual video podcast. It was fun. It was good to see reactions. It was good to see when there was displeasure on (laughs) Carolyn's face um, after, you know, something I said. But of course, I like to, uh, I was, well, for lack of a better phrase, pimp you guys out, you know. So where can people find you, Carolyn? Your book is practically in the universe. That's true. Um, My upcoming book, yes, uh, is supposed to be out in August. <gasps> One Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. Mm. No, I just I, I changed the title again. Hold on. <laughs> Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel: Militarism and Feminism in Comics and Film. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I should be getting page proofs in a couple weeks, and then I turn that around, and then it goes into production and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that being out. Um, so look for that at your bookstore. No, it won't be in your bookstore, but. The ebook will be pretty cheap and I'll have color illustrations. So that's what you want to do. Uh, other than that, um, if anybody wants to contact me, the best way is email. So that's coca c at oldwestbury.edu. And sometimes I'm on the Talking Comics podcast if you wanted to hear me bloviate about other comics too. <laughs> Good word. Yeah. I am still on questions we don't advance. I'm still on. I still run. <laughs> We don't have answers. Yes, it won't be soon. <laughs> As over my smoking corpse, it won't be. Um, <sighs> during the pandemic, uh, Harry and I just listened to doing several commentaries on films we thought were fun to talk about. They're pretty random. We did commentary on uh, the Cowboy Bebop film, Knocking on Heaven's Door. We did a commentary on Death Wish 3. We did a commentary on uh, Star Wars, Reggie the Sith. And we did a commentary on Ghost in Shell 1995. But the most recent episode we did was uh, on questioning the um, the, rele- the relevancy of Superman and questioning that very question. We had uh, <laughs> John M. Wilson and Raphael Su, who were both uh, longtime podcasters and huge Superman fans. I thought that we had a pretty dense discussion uh, while keeping it civil when it came to the Snyder stuff, at least for the time being. Uh, you can find that at QNOMasters.com. 
Additionally, I provide articles for DC Universe uh, on the DCUniverse.com streaming service, where uh, the most recent one as of this recording, Batgirl, is um, <laughs> it was for World Goth Day. Uh, so I wrote about Raven stories. And uh, one, the one I want to write about today is the seven times a hero was killed by a villain. And as of right now, I only have six, one, six choices. So I need to find a seventh uh, choice for that. But that, that should be coming up by the time you are watching slash listening to this. There you go. You can find it. Yeah, soon I will be taking over questions we don't have answers. And I'm no, gonna you re- wait. I'm going to rename it to questions. Stella has the answer. No, so. no, no. <laughs> If if I have to chop off Harry's hands to prevent that from happening, I'll have I'll I'll do what I must. Oh my goodness! Hey, it has been a pleasure. I thought that, that this was a lot of fun, and I lasted longer than five minutes because I was very worried I was going to lose it, uh, especially during uh, Professor Poly Tetra Fluoroethylene. Ooh, Professor P for short. Uh, remember, you can <laughs> send any questions or comments to back the Oracle at gmail.com. Find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. And now I guess on YouTube, I guess subscribe. I don't know how long I'm going to do this. At least, you know, for the summer, I think it'll be fun. Like the show on Facebook. Follow it on Twitter at Backroll the Oracle. And be sure to follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time. Fight on, cast lovers. That's sick. It's sick. Fly on, Babs lovers. Thank you. That's really all we care about. What about the Steph lovers? Oh, you're right. You know, you're right. You heard her. That's all they really care about. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?